playing jazz is like problem solving. You know, you start improvising and you hit a wall, and they're like, "Okay, how am I gonna get around this wall?" And then you do it. But the thing is, you can get around that wall in a million different ways, depending on your experience, your musical taste, your concept, your technique. That was drummer Antonio Sanchez. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Antonio Sanchez has played alongside some of the greatest musicians in modern jazz, including Danilo Perez, Chick Corea, and Paquito de Rivera. He has been an integral part of every project Pat Metheny has undertaken in the past 13 years. Little wonder Sanchez is a sought-after musician. His drumming is dynamic and lightning quick, with a range that's unsurpassed. Yet he's probably the most melodic drummer working today, reveling in moments of quiet detail. Quite simply, Antonio Sanchez is a musician through and through. He studied piano and composition at the National Conservatory in Mexico before moving to Boston, where he studied jazz at the Berklee College of Music. Five years ago, Sanchez branched out and began recording his own compositions as a band leader. In fact, New Life, his third CD in five years, was recently released to glowing reviews. While Antonio Sanchez's choice of a career as a jazz drummer might have been a bit unexpected, his decision to make a life in the arts was not. In fact, you might even say that the arts are the family's business. If I had to put it in a nutshell, I would say that the most important part about my grandfather being a famous actor and also my mother being in the film industry and my other, my uncle is also an actor, uh, my cousin, she's a tango dancer. I mean, there's a lot of arts in the family. But I would say that the most important thing is witnessing that you can make a good living doing what you love. And that's my grandfather, of course. You know, ever since I was a kid, never I had a doubt that you could make a good living and you could make it and that you could survive by doing solely what you love because he did it. So if we would have grown poor or if I would have heard him maybe complaining about the business all the time and, oh, there's no work and blah, 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 maybe it would have made a difference the other way, but it was completely the opposite. So there was never a doubt in my mind that that, that could be accomplished. Was there a kind of excitement about it when you were growing up? Did you go to rehearsals? Oh, yeah. I loved all that stuff. You know, even though I never really wanted to be an actor, I loved just the energy of the audience. And I loved being backstage and in the dressing room and, and just see the inner workings of a play or a show. So, yeah, I, I used to love that. What kind of music did you listen to when you were growing up? Well, my mother, she's 60. She just turned 60 last month. So she's from the Woodstock generation, if you will. So I grew up listening to everything she was listening to, which was Santana, uh, The Beatles, The Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, all this uh, great rock band. So rock was definitely my first love. And you played rock for a while, didn't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. In my teenage years, I had a bunch of different bands in Mexico and would be playing all over the city in, in this uh, horrible rock clubs. But, you know, that taught me a lot in, in many different ways. How did you move to jazz? After trying to make it with a rock band for quite a few years, I started get, getting really fed up with the band 
how 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 could I call it with, with with the band mentality in the sense that okay if you want to be a rock musician and you want to have a successful band if you don't have an incredibly charismatic singer and you know if uh, your hair is this way or your looks are this way all that influences way too much your success and that started really messing with my head so when I started listening to jazz I started realizing that if I got really good just myself you know, in my own instrument, then I could be like a hired gun to many people that wanted to play all kinds of music. It ended up being jazz, but I was training, if you want to call it that, to be the best all-around drummer in the planet. You know, I wanted to be able to play every style and sound completely authentic in every style. And then little by little, I started liking more and more jazz and the freedom that jazz gives you. And then I just started going that way, basically. Now, meanwhile, you had studied at the National Conservatory in Mexico, and you studied classical piano and composition. How did you move from piano to drums? It was one of those things that I didn't really choose drums, but drums chose me completely. I was five, and um, I saw this drum kit that my uncle's girlfriend's brother had. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it it was uh, just love at first sight with that drum kit that he had. It was a a see-through drum kit like the one John Bonham from Led Zeppelin used to play. And it was just the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. And I just started taking lessons with him since I was five. And the lessons consisted on, on basically just me going to his place and he would teach me basic technique and just playing along to the record. So that's why I fell in love with playing rock in the beginning. But then after a while, I thought it would be interesting to study a different instrument where you could play chords and melodies and you actually could see the music theory in the instrument because the piano is so graphic you know you can see the notes and it's very easy to learn theory in that instrument so you know I wanted to be a more complete drummer and a more complete musician so that definitely helped me a lot to open my ears. And when I went to Berkeley in 1993, that helped me a lot to keep writing and to keep my music theory up. And it was at Berkeley where you met Danilo Perez. And that turned out to be a very important relationship for you. Yeah, he wasn't teaching there, but he lives in Boston still. And we became friends. And then I started studying with him at the New England Conservatory when I was done with Berkeley. What was really poignant for me in my relationship with Danilo was that he basically jump-started my career in the big leagues, if you want to call it that. I was studying with him, and I had this evil plan in my head, very clear, that I was going to study with him, learn all his music, and he was going to basically coach me while he was teaching me, basically to play in his trio, in his band, to play his music. So he might not have known it, but that's exactly what I was doing. And I thought, okay, if one day his drummer can't make it, then I know everything. And he's even taught me verbally how to play his music. And it did happen one day. The drummer was playing with him at the time, couldn't make some gigs in Paris, and they called me. I did a good job, and then they started calling me for a bunch of stuff after that. And then I became part of the trio. And we toured all the time, year-round, for like two and a half years, and it was a great learning experience. You know, but I was pretty green. I had just come out of Berkeley, and and he was kicking my butt in every way. It was a lot of tough love, but I learned so much from, from those years. You know, I'm, I'm very grateful that all that stuff happened. What was the biggest challenge for you when you were so young and green? 
Well, I just didn't have experience. So jazz and playing music, I think it's a lot about experience. You can have great technique, but you know, you come into situations where you am not sure what's the best way to play. That's always happening, you know, night after night. And for me, playing jazz is like problem solving. You know, you start improvising and you hit a wall and they're like, okay, how am I going to get around this wall? And then you do it. But the thing is, you can get around that wall in a million different ways, depending on your experience, your musical taste, your concept, your technique, and all those things. It, it takes time for you to start getting all that stuff together. So that was the biggest challenge for me. This is something you do so well as a drummer to hold back a little bit, to leave some space. And I think when one is younger, that enthusiasm can just charge through any any space that might better be left. Oh, I couldn't have put it better myself. I mean, you don't want to hear recordings of me when I was like 21. I was just going insane on the drums all the time. And, you know, I had a lot of technique, so I was just trying to showcase that technique all the time, not in the best way. And that was one of the biggest challenges when I started playing with people like um, Danilo, who started making me scale back on all that stuff and just thinking a lot more of the stuff when I was actually playing and not just playing by reflex, which was for a musician that has been practicing hours and hours every day, you know, your your hands kind of do the job for you. Sometimes you don't have to think that much. And that was my problem. You know, I was not thinking everything I was playing through, really. I was just my letting my hands go. And that a lot of times got in the way of the music. You're known for many things as a drummer. And one of them is the dynamic range that you possess on the drums from being able to play softly, yet still very intensely. And the ability to go full out as loud as anybody. Yeah, that's one of the things that I enjoy the most about the drums, that you can be the loudest instrument and you can be as soft as anybody else, you know, and just the element of surprise and uh, with the dynamic range that the drums give you, I think it's it's great if you can really manage that. A lot of drummers tend to play from like the half of the dynamic range of the drums up and then there's all this stuff down there that a lot of people don't play. And for me, it's a great pleasure, you know, when, when I get to play incredibly loud music and then two seconds later, you're playing like the softest thing that almost you cannot even hear. And the, the ear reacts to that in a very dramatic way. I have no idea if this will make sense to you or not, but it reminds me of Beethoven and the piano mm -hmm. and the way he, he uses the whole keyboard. Yeah, it's a good analogy. The thing with the drums is that you have so many different sounds. You can get a lot of sounds out of the piano, but you know it's, uh, it's, it's the piano. Or with the saxophone, it's the same thing. But with drums, the thing is you can add drums, you can add cymbals, you can remove every, every drum and every cymbal depending on where you're hitting it. It sounds completely different depending on the brand, depending on the model, depending on what drum heads you're using, depending on what sticks you're using. So... What is very cool about the drums is that it's completely personable. You know, you can personalize it and customize it to a really deep extent. And I think that makes the drums stand alone in that regard. The drums, I think it's also responsible for keeping the music moving, for kind of setting, I could be completely wrong, but it seems like it sets the boundary, it sets the map. 
in some ways. Yeah, I think a lot of really good musicians, they all agree. Probably a band is only as good as the drummer because the drummer is the heartbeat, you know, the engine of the whole equation. And you can have a really good band with a great bass player and a great piano player and a great saxophone player. And if the drummer is not very good, then the band is not going to sound that great. But if you have you know, a really good drummer with an okay band, that's a better equation in general, I think. Okay, explain the difference in your drumming when you're backing up a saxophonist, say, like Paquito de Rivera, as opposed to a pianist like Danilo Perez. Actually, I love playing with sax players, and I love playing with piano players. Obviously, when you're playing in a piano trio, you have to keep things, I think, at least dynamically in terms of how loud you're playing at a certain level. And usually when there's a sax player in the mix, you can raise it up a little bit, I think, because the saxophone just, uh, and well, the piano too, but the saxophone just exudes power and, and energy. So one of my favorite instruments to, to play with is the saxophone players. And that's why in my bands I've always had basically two horn players because I love just that energy that uh, saxophone will give you. You have a great cut on your new CD, New Life, where you have many, but that really speaks to you interacting with the saxophone. And I'm thinking of The Real McDaddy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Talk yeah. a little bit about that piece. That's a, such an interesting piece of music. Yeah, I mean, that piece was designed exactly for that. And uh, The Real McDaddy is like an inside joke I have with Donnie McCaslin. And McCaslin McDaddy, I, it's kind of dedicated to him. And, and he was one, he's one of my favorite sax players, and Dave Binney as well. So I just wanted a piece that they could just do their thing in the beginning. When we recorded it, it's a fairly short intro, but when we play it live, sometimes we go for, I don't know, five minutes. First, they improvise by themselves, and then I come into the mix, 
and we start going to places that sometimes we've never gone before. So it, it's a lot of fun to play that piece. And also, I wanted to write a piece where people really didn't know what's going on. You know, we stop, we start, and uh, when we play it live, it's really funny because people never know when to clap because we stop so many times, and it's designed to kind of throw people off. It's just a lot of fun to play live. You and Pat Metheny have worked a lot together over the years. How did you guys first hook up? I was in uh, Torino playing with Danilo's trio. This was in 1999, 2000, something like that. And um, we were doing a double bill with Pat's trio. And uh, Pat usually likes to open the concert. He doesn't like playing second. So he played first. Italy, he's like a rock star over there. So he got this huge crowd in this open air festival in the park. And he just tore it up. And then we were supposed to play. And I was really scared. Like, man, what are we going to play after that? So back then with Danilo, I was playing this uh, jazz kit, but I would add some percussion. I had a set of bongos, I had a conga drum, and I had a timbal, and I had a bunch of cowbells, and I had this cowbell activated with a bass drum pedal that I would put to my left, the left of my hi-hat. So I was getting a lot of sounds out of the drum kit. And uh, the funny story was that the promoter that organized the concert after Pat played, they were having dinner backstage, but they could hear what we were playing. And the promoter asked Pat, so what do you think about this band? Do you like it? And he said, yeah, yeah, I really dig it. And I especially like the way the percussion player and the drummer play together. And then the promoter said, no, no, but it's just one guy. And then he says, what? And then he got up and went to the stage, and he saw me playing all this crazy stuff that uh, I was playing back then. And he got really interested in me, and then uh, he came to see me to another gig that we had in London. And we exchanged emails, and he wrote me this really long email the first time saying everything that he liked about my playing and then asking me questions like, do you only play jazz? Do you like other styles of music? Do you consider yourself a person that is open-minded when it comes to arts? I mean, it was almost like a, like a questionnaire to get a job or something. Like, wow, that's interesting. And then at the end it said, oh, by the way, you know, are you around next Thursday? Do you want to jam? And you know, I, was, I was floored. So we started jamming every time we would both be in town. And basically all that, those questions were he would, wanted to see if I would be a good fit for the Pat Metheny group that had been around for over 25 years. And by getting together every so often, you know, he started realizing more and more that I definitely was a good fit. And then at the end of uh, maybe six months of just jamming and playing, then he offered me the gig. And the great thing is that I love playing with the Pat Metheny group because it's a, it's a big production with voices and six or seven people. And we play with uh, sequences and computer and, you know, it's just a really nice, you know, big, lush sound that we get. But the cool thing is that I think Pat really felt like we had such a thing when we played that then he started calling me for the trio, for a quartet. We're doing another project next year. So it, I've been involved in virtually every project he's done for the last 13 years. So I feel incredibly fortunate to, to be able to say that. Now, during the, this time, were you also writing music? I was writing not that much because, first of all, I was on the road constantly. I mean, I'm still on the road quite a bit. But the difference is that now I make holes in my schedule just to write. 
before I, I didn't do that. I would just go from one tour to the next, to the next, to the next. And actually, I hated being home. You know, I just wanted to be out. Now, you know, I'm engaged. I have a, a wonderful woman uh, with me, which also happens to be a great musician. So now I love being home, and I really don't want to go anywhere, but, you know, it's my job. <laughs> and and once I'm out, of course, I, I enjoy it. But, yeah, when it comes to composing, it's hard for me to write on the road. It takes so much energy out of me just to be traveling and to be playing every night. So to be thinking about writing, it's really hard for me. Some people do it, but I, I can't. I have to be home and have some peace of mind and be relaxed, and then the music starts flowing a lot easier. Can you talk about just a little bit about your process of, of writing? Sure. I mean, it's very different with every tune. For example, The Real McDaddy, that I basically wrote pretty much the whole thing in my head when I was on the road. I just started humming this thing. And I was, I think, probably out for a month, and I kept humming it every day. And I never even had to record it or, or sing it to a recorder or something, not to forget it. I just had, had it in my head. And at the end of that month-long tour, I came back home, and I sat down on the piano, and I basically transcribed it from my head. And it was done, like, in a couple of hours. I wish I was <laughs> able to write like that every time, because that's so easy. But most of the time, I just start with an idea of a bass line or a melody. And then I sit, sit on the piano and I start developing, sometimes for weeks, sometimes for months. Every tune kind of has a different birth process. Your first CD, the one in which you, you led a group, is Migration. Mm-hmm. What, what led to you deciding to make this happen? I don't know. I felt like I, I just needed to get a little out of my comfort zone that had been playing with a bunch of different bands led by other people. And I could have kept on doing that forever, and I would have been totally cool, and, you know, you make very decent money, and you travel all over the world. But then I was like, I feel a little bit of an itch, you know, to do something myself and to present something. I felt at that moment that I was mature enough musically that I could present something that would be something that people w- would want to check out. And I had enough enough of a track record that people would pay a little bit of attention. You know, I wasn't a completely unknown musician. I had been playing with, with Matheny for a while. I had played with Michael Brecker, with Chicoria, with Danilo, of course, David Sanchez, Paquito Rivera. I mean, I, I had a good track record, and I was on a lot of records already. So I, I thought it was a good time to try to showcase uh, what I had in my mind musically at the time. You knocked that one right out of the park. Oh, it was an extraordinary you. CD. And you kept it small. You had Chikoria and Pat Metheny on as featured players, but it really was a quartet. Yeah. I've always loved the sound and the freedom that not having a piano in the band gives you, which is just bass and two saxophones. In that case, it was two tenor saxophones. And two of my favorite players, which is Chris Potter and uh, David Sanchez, both of them masterful. And the bass player was Scott Colley, which I had been playing for many years in very different situations. So I, I just love that freedom and the space gives you when you don't have a chordal instrument. But by the same token, having played with Pat so much and then having played with Chick, 
and both of them being two of my biggest heroes, I was like, man, it would be such an honor, such a thrill to have them both on the CD. And I actually asked them to write something for the CD, and they were totally into it. And when it all came to fruition, it was just like a, a dream come true, of course. The current CD, New Life, you expanded the group a bit. You do have a piano in this one. Yeah. After having said that I love that freedom that not having a chordal instrument gives you, then I was like, wait a minute. I studied piano. I write on the piano. It would make sense to have a piano in the band. <laughs> so, yeah, this time I decided to go for it and because there's a lot of things that you cannot play when you don't have a chordal instrument behind you. The space is great, but um, sometimes you feel like you're walking on eggshells when it's just a bass and the drums accompanying the saxophones. So when you have a piano that fills up that space or a guitar, it's just, oh, man, it's so much easier in general just to come across. But when you're playing ballads or stuff with uh, more space, then as a drummer, as a bass player, you feel like you can lay back a little more and not have to fill all the time, that space. Just the texture that the piano gives you is just uh, incredible for me. So this this time around, when I started using the piano and writing for the piano and the two horns, I just found so many more possibilities, sonic possibilities. And I think the, the record documents them pretty well. Probably the centerpiece of New Life is, in fact, the track, New Life, which mm-hmm. is over 15 minutes long. Can you just talk a little bit about it? Sure. I mean, I didn't start writing it and I thought it was going to become this huge uh, piece. I thought it was going to be, you know, a nice kind of ballady piece that maybe would last, I don't know, five, six minutes. Then as it went by and I started writing more and more material, I kept thinking, okay, let me try to keep going a little more. Because that's the thing with jazz. You can write a a tune that is 16 bars long, and then you start soloing over those 16 bars long. And you can do that for 20 minutes. But the written material is basically 16 bars. So in this record, my goal was to just push myself as a composer. My first two records were more the other kind of of writing, which is very short tunes, and then we just improvise the hell out of the, the form. But on this one, I just wanted to see how far I could take it, you know, with uh, with the writing. And New Life was basically the epitome of that. 
you know, I started writing. I was like, okay, let me keep going a little more and then add another theme and then do this other thing and then maybe add this completely new section that had nothing to do with the beginning and then how am I going to get back to that section? So I just started challenging myself and that track, New Life, was the result of that. The CD also has an extraordinary singer, Thana. Am I saying her name correctly? Thana Alexa? Tana. 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 Tana Alexa. Yeah. What a voice. Yeah. It's, it's an instrument. I'm biased because she happens to be my fiance. She's ah. that amazing woman I was talking about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, right from the first time I heard it, I was like, wow, she can really sing. And when I started writing that piece, I was like, man, it would be so nice to have a voice. And I wasn't sure if it would be a male voice or a female voice. And then one day I was like, wait a minute, you know, I have like a great singer that is living with me. I'm just going to use her. Can you talk just a bit about the difference between being in the studio, laying down tracks for the CD and actually performing? Uh, I think it's quite different, actually, because in the studio, it's just a sample uh, most of the time of what you do live. And it needs to be a lot more concise. And it needs to be a little more to the point, I think. I mean, that's why my second record was live, because I wanted people to hear some of the same tunes that we recorded in Migration and then hear them expanded when you play it live. For example, uh, there's a tune on my first record called Greedy Silence that is probably, I don't know, seven minutes or something like that. And then when we recorded it live and it's on the second record, that's 20 minutes long. And it's exactly the same tune, but the improvisations just get completely to a different level. But now I like to keep a little bit of a balance. And I think I've also been very influenced by Matheny in that way. That, yes, you're playing live and you're playing in front of people and you're improvising. But also, I don't want to stray away too much that it's just kind of like an ego stroke. Okay, let, let me see how cool I can be or how far I can take it. Nowadays, I really like to keep the people's attention in mind. The attention span of people has reduced dramatically over the last years, I think, because of uh, social media, you know, the music that is being played now. So, yes, I want to push them a little bit, but I don't want to push them so hard that I lose them, you know. And I think uh, Methane is a great example, uh, Chikoria too, that play amazing music, but they always have the people in mind. I think sometimes jazz musicians can be like, oh, well, you know what? I'm going to play what I play. If you don't dig it, sorry. I don't want to be like that. I want to, of course, satisfy myself and my musical spirit and uh, my musical instinct. But I want it to be inclusive. I don't want it to be like such hard music that people don't understand it. Or the improvisations are so long that we're just stroking our, our egos. I'd just like you to stop for a second and think, why, why do you think we listen to jazz? What does it do for people when they hear jazz? When they hear music in general, what, what does that art give listeners? Well, nowadays, I, I have the theory that, for example, there's so much music out there and so much of it is so bad. You know, it's very well produced, but really the meat of what's there, it's uh, very lacking. I'm generalizing, of course. You know, there's great pop, there's great rock, but by the same token, there's terrible pop, rock, and all kinds of music out there. And uh, I think we've been catering as a society to the lowest common denominator because it's a lot easier to make. You know, you don't have to put so much thought into it. It's like a movie. 
You know, if you put a blockbuster together, you have a few formulas that you know people are going to love because it's been proven over and over again, and they just make another one, and it's a huge hit. But it's, is it good? Is it surprising? Is it original? Not really. So I think the difference with jazz and why people like listening to it and going out and checking it out is because I think they can see that something's being created in the spot by people that have put hours and years and lifetimes of just trying to research what can be done with this music and to witness that on the spot with three or four, five, six people that are masters at what they do. I think it's a little bit like going to a basketball game and saying Michael Jordan. You know, it's, it's just incredible to witness such talent and such command of something, you know, live. So when you go to see jazz played by great musicians, it's a little bit like that. It's like going to a great soccer game or a, or a football or a basketball game where you can see oh, wow, they've trained a lot and they're improvising and they're coming up with this amazing place on the spot. You know, how do they do it? And I think that kind of fascinates people, I, just like it fascinates me. Well, Antonio, thank you for giving me your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Joe. That was drummer Antonio Sanchez. His recent CD is called New Life. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from Family Ties, New Life, and The Real McDaddy. From the CD, New Life, composed and performed by Antonio Sanchez. Used courtesy of Antonio Sanchez and DL Media, Inc. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. You can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, the 2013 Pulitzer Prize winner for fiction, Adam Johnson. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.